here we are in uh, lockdown. What is it now? Is it 2.6 billion people around the planet? They approximate, obviously, living in lockdown at the moment because of the, the coronavirus that's, you know, terrorizing the whole planet and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, for many people, it's quite tricky uh, living in this way, not being allowed out, not being able to see people. Social distancing is a bit strange. For some people, being left on their own is a bit strange. I mean, I, I've, just before the lockdown came, actually, I was in a little bit of a, a private retreat, which I often do. I go away for a few weeks at a time and just do my own training. So I was uh, in here, this apartment uh, that I was in, um, doing my own personal private sort of practice retreat. Um, and then the lockdown came and, and, you know, quarantine. So I essentially got uh, stuck here a little bit longer than I planned. So I guess for lots of people, what if they've been on lockdown for two weeks or something? I think I'm on like week six or seven or something like that. I'm not sure. I don't know, but it's been a while anyway. And, uh, you know, it's all right. I didn't mind a little bit of an extension uh, to the practice or whatever. And I've been able to get on, gone, get on with what I'm doing. And I've quite enjoyed it, you know, on, a, on that level. But I think for a lot of people, it's really difficult. I mean, just looking on social media, five, ten minutes on social media doesn't take very long. I, I was watching it and um, I saw day one of the lockdown. Everyone's going, oh my God, we're in lockdown, what are we going to do? And they're panicking about not being able to get out and get things. And what did they do? They panic bought toilet roll in England, which was a weird one, wasn't it? In America, they panic bought guns, which is also quite worrying. Isn't it? I don't know what they're planning on doing with those. Um, but everyone panic bought everything on day one and then day three or four, everybody realized it was kind of okay and stopped panic buying because supermarkets pretty much had food in, um, at least where I am anyway. And then after that, you started to see the social media posts. And first of all, people, uh, you know, I just take a quick look down all the sort of people I'm friends with, all the people who follow me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And I sort of skim down it and uh, sort of have a look, see what people are doing. And you see that at first, I've been watching this TV series and that TV series. I watched this movie and um, I time to read some books had a few nice baths, something like that. I don't know, whatever they're sharing, they're sharing these things. Um, and then I noticed after that, a few days later, it started to get a bit more strange. Like another week, another week, um, as, as it stretches out, it's got more peculiar. So what started to be, you know, I've been watching this TV series and having a nice rest and catching up on some reading, started to turn into, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm starting to get a bit worried now, turning into the fear of, you know, catching coronavirus, which I suppose is valid or whatever. But then it started to get weird. So then I started to see on social media, people starting to share posts that range from quite amusing, you know, things about, you know, haven't bothered wearing any pants for the last week or something. And people with sort of shaggy hair because they haven't been able to cut their hair because the hairdressers are all closed. Or, or maybe they're doing weird things like the pendulum trick, if you know what that is, you know, to entertain themselves. But then you get quite worrying ones as well, where people are actually talking about their mental health and they're starting to struggle. And I think that a lot of people are starting to fall into that trap. And, and we see on sort of mainstream media, initially they talk about the difficulty of catching coronavirus and how dangerous it is, which is you know, the basis of all this. Um, a lot of people have um, got sick with it now. And then uh, the next thing is they're talking about economic damage, you know, which is probably something that I guess we're not even starting to see the tip of the iceberg yet. It was, I saw another six million people had registered for unemployment in America already, or, or maybe, maybe it's more than that, I don't know. But it, you know, the fallout is going to be quite incredible from this. Um, you know, but only now are they starting to talk about the mental health aspect of this, like what is going to be the, the outcome of this. I mean, so I saw that out of uh, Wuhan in China, where, you know, things are starting to return back to normal, the lockdown has ended after, what, two, three months, something like that, that uh, I think something like a third of people who had been in lockdown with their children, with their kids, were actually uh, reporting, you know, bad mental health uh, results of this and actually seeking assistance for it um, because of the stress of being locked into a very small space. Now, I've spent time in China. I know how small some of the houses are, um, so that doesn't surprise me, to be perfectly honest, if you've got two young kids within a small space. But of course, um, you know, those kind of statistics are probably going to be seen all over Europe afterwards. And actually, I, I've always found um, the Chinese to be quite a mentally resilient uh, nation anyway. So I'm sure we're going to see maybe the same or maybe worse statistics coming out of Europe once all of this is done in America. Um, I saw that uh, your mental health helplines are now receiving uh, more phone calls uh, from people saying that they're struggling. Um, suicide, it's, you know, people talking about suicidal thoughts on the telephones. And th I mean, even, I'm even seeing that on social media. I mean, just skimming down through Facebook or, or Instagram, I've seen 
two or three messages from people saying that they want assistance because they're thinking of ending it all. And that's after what, like, what is it now? Two, two weeks in lockdown? I've, I've lost track, something like that. I don't know. And already people are worried about that. So if this carries on, of course, people are going to get deeper and deeper into this process and, and the results are going to, of this are going to be worse. And this is all basically what happens when people are left in isolation. Once Netflix has run out, they've run out of movies to watch, they've read the two or three books they may own these days because books are a thing of the past and they've wandered around the house and done all the strange things you want to do. That's what's left, is basically confronted with your, your own mental health. On top of this, just to add to the doom and gloom, um, I see that domestic violence has increased with people uh, reaching out to helplines asking for this because, of course, if people are trapped in a small space and then these feelings of frustration are arising, then what often happens is people will lash out to the, the people they live with, which is you know the root of much domestic uh, violence and problems like this. So all of these issues are, um, are starting to come up around you know, isolation, essentially lockdown. And, and, uh, and I think the ramifications of this are gonna be felt a long time after the actual coronavirus has faded away or, or whatever's gonna happen to it, I don't know. So, the, I mean, one of the questions will be, will the damage from that be more than from the virus? I don't know. I'm not sure. Those are kind of moral, ethical, and maybe even scientific questions I don't have any answers to. But it, it's just been, for me, one of the most fascinating things watching that process unfold. It reminds me of, um, if you ever watched those sort of post-apocalyptic movies or a sci-fi movie or something like that when Maybe, actually, sci-fi movies, isn't it, where the, the spaceship is going to investigate another spaceship that's been lost for years on end, and they don't know what happened to the crew, and they turn up and they find the video diaries, don't they? And, then, and they flick through the video diaries, sort of, week one, and there they are all happily playing games on the space station, doing whatever they are, mining moon dust, I don't know. And then by week two, they're starting to argue and to fight a bit. By week three, you know, there's one sending out an SOS because the crew has gone mad. And by week four, he's just smearing his shit on the camera and then they're all dead or something, you know. And that kind of like scene where everything's unfolding and getting madder week by week by week, I think is what is going to uh, happen as lockdown goes on further and further. In many ways, it's kind of a reflection of um, what you see in meditation training uh, for me, or, or when beginners come into meditation, which is what's been uh, kind of interesting to me, because what did I, how many, 2.6 billion in lockdown? I mean, that's kind of the biggest mental um, social experiment of isolation ever done in the history of humanity, isn't it? To force 2.6 billion people to sit still and only confront their own mind. Um, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a thing, right? But if you actually look at what happens when people start meditation training, something very, very similar happens. Uh, something very, very similar where they encounter their own mind, you know, and, and the first time they encounter their own mind, ah, up comes the inner madness. And, and, and I've been surprised by um, many times by new students who, who came and, and sometimes they say the same thing. It's like, oh, I've never done any meditation. I'd like to kind of explore. Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing is we have to get used to our own mind, our own nature. Because as much as anything, if you don't know your own mind, you don't know your own nature, uh, you're not going to rise above it, you're not going to transcend it, it's not going to transform. And, and they sort of look confused, and I'm like, no, 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 forget everything. Like, first thing, when I get people to train meditation, um, is I don't give them any method, no watching the breath, <clears throat> no object of meditation, no contemplation, nothing. The first thing they do is just sit and do nothing. And I start every meditation retreat that way. Sit and do nothing. Well, they mean nothing. Just sit. How long for? doesn't matter actually, because if you know you're going to be sat for half an hour, if you know you're going to be sat for an hour, if you know you're going to be sat for 90 minutes, that's almost like, um, like a safety line. Do you know what I mean? It's better off not knowing. You know, you just have to give yourself over to sitting and uh, not knowing how long you could be sat there with no method. So what do I do? Just sit there, shut your eyes. That's it. <laughs> Nothing to do. And often what I'll do actually as a teacher, it's a little bit cruel, but if I have a beginner's retreat, I will tell them, right, we are going to sit for 45 minutes, something like that. And I make them all sit there, and, and then uh, often I'll sit for two and a half hours, something like that. And, and of course, what happens is they don't have anything to do, and they don't have any perception of the time, and they don't have a lifeline for how long this thing is going to last. So, of course, what happens is they go a little bit crazy because their mind starts to go really, really hyperactive. And, and that's what I mean. At that stage, what I'm trying to do is just enable people to get used to who they are. You know, I mean, hopefully, nobody completely cracks. Um, we haven't had to. Well, actually, there's been a couple that have been wheeled off in an ambulance, but not too many. Normally, everybody's all right. So 
what do you do is you, you get them used to this and out comes a craziness. And always what they say uh, when people sort of really engage this process was, well, I was quite surprised at just how crazy I was on the inside. And that's always a bit of a shocker to me because when they say that, because I don't know why people think that human mind is going to be beautiful. Um, I think that human mind is often chaotic. I think sometimes what's deeper than mind is quite beautiful, but definitely on the level of mind, it's, it's crazy, it's chaotic. And, and there's many reasons for that. There's reasons why that's the case. But this is kind of what's happening in the lockdown now, right? Because, okay, they're not sat there in meditation, but people are in an apartment or a house, a small space, locked down, can't go out apart from the bulk by toilet roll and guns, if they're America or whatever. But they're stuck with their mind and they don't know how long this lockdown is going to last. And in some ways that's making it worse because if they knew, look, three weeks time is going to be over, but they don't know that because the media is saying, okay, it'll be over in a week and you've got Donald Trump saying we'll be having Easter eggs um, in a few days, so don't worry about that. And then you've got other media outlets saying, yeah, expect this to last for 18 months, two years, who knows? And that uncertainty is, of course, adding to all of that stress. And it's a similar process to when people are learning to sit. Now, there's various reasons for this, and there's also various um, mechanisms that were discovered within meditation that would help people to change this, you know, to deal with that part of their mind, to deal with this chaos that comes out from the center when you confront your own being. Um, and, and I'm seeing this, you know, I'm seeing, you know, the people online, the, the, the COVID quarantiners generation, we'll call them. There's really three types. You get, you, get the, um, you get the people that are going through this process, you know, encountering their mind and finding it difficult and stressful and, and, and all sorts of awful mental suffering is coming up. That's, that's kind of the first one, right? They're going a bit crazy. Then you've got the second group, which is a kind of, what you could call them, it's like a mixture of spiritual people and introspective people and people that are being sensible, you know, turning it into a time to, um, you know, self-analyze and consider themselves and maybe learn a skill online or something like that or, or whatever, you know, using the time usefully. But the meditation practitioners are definitely in this category. You've got the crazies and you've got the ones who are looking inside and doing something constructive with it. And then you've got the third one, you've got the conspiracy theorists um, who having a heyday right now like this is this whole situation is just confirming everything they ever believed all the way through from nanotechnology microchipping injections through the reptiles and fake lunar bases but i won't talk about that too much because um the last video received a warning from youtube because i mentioned conspiracy theories and covid so we'll leave the third group alone for the moment and we'll go to really the the spiritual group the meditative group and often what I'm seeing is when they talk about meditation, because they're starting to write things on social media too, because that's what you do if you're spiritual. You put stuff on social media for other people to know how spiritual you are, myself included. And what they're saying often is, you know, there's all these things about like, go inside, stay away from mind, stay away from the awareness, go to the observer behind or whatever terminology you use, go to the true self, go to the, the thing that sits at the center. And all these things are true because, of course, within meditation, we know we have layers of mind. You have persona, you have personality, you have the psyche, you have your emotions, you have all of those things. That's mind, right? The things we erroneously identify with. But then, of course, underneath that, you have consciousness, you might call it, and then you have awareness, and then maybe spirit, and then true self, Buddha nature. You know, whatever, whatever system it is, they'll have their own model for these layers that can be stepped back into when you go into meditative training. And, of course, that's true. If you can reside within those things, then that's marvelous. <laughs> but it, it's kind of a bit um, rich of maybe spiritual practitioners or whatever who've, who've spent 10, 15, 20 years, maybe longer, studying that process to then put out the advice to people. Yeah, you see that thing that you've been residing in for your entire life? Yeah, step, step back out of that to this thing down here that's made of pure spiritual light or whatever it is, you know? And... Uh, maybe that's a bit tricky, you know, <laughs> and especially because everyone's in lockdown. It's like there's no instructions to do it. And, and if you can't do it, then, well, you're going to go mad anyway. So I think that actually, if you're not someone who's used to that kind of training, uh, stepping back out of that place, um, then really, I, I think it's more pertinent to become more familiar with the, the nature of delusional mind, the thing that is often being written about online to step away from, I think actually step into it, like get to know it, because realistically, you're not going to, in your isolation of a couple of weeks, while feeling a bit crazy and doing the pendulum trick and not wearing any trousers for a few weeks or, or whatever, um, you're not going to manage to step completely out of self-identification to a deeper spiritual state. That would be highly unlikely. If you can, marvellous. But I think that's a little bit tricky. 
I think actually what's more useful is actually to embrace and understand the thing that is causing you so much stress in the first place, because there's reasons why your mind is stressful. There's reasons why it's going a little bit crazy. Now, if you look at what happens when people engage in meditation, maybe they go on a 10-day Vipassana retreat, or maybe longer, maybe three or four months in Asia, or, or something, whatever they do, you know, and normally the difference between those people and people who are now in isolation and have done that kind of training is ultimately intention. Because the person who wants to learn meditation, well, they've got the intention to learn meditation. So what's the difference between that person and someone in isolation? Well, the person who's choosing to be in isolation for a retreat has already made the decision that they're going to deal with their mind. They've already made the decision that they're going to have to deal with these emotions that are coming up. Maybe they've already done some reading around it, some preparatory training. Maybe they're prepared for the mental suffering. Maybe they know they're going to be on their own. That makes a massive difference because you're prepared. The people who are now in isolation who haven't done any meditative training before are obviously not prepared. So they're going in. You imagine taking like your most hyperactive extrovert friend who loves partying and going out and just basically complete sensory overload all the time and then telling them, you know what, I'm going to take you to Disneyland over the moon. Really happy with this. I don't know why with Disneyland. don't know why this friend is so childish, but you know what I mean? They'd be really happy with that. I'm going to take you to Vegas for all this stimulation. And then actually it's just an evil trick and you take them on a Vipassana retreat for three months. Can you imagine the hell they would be in? Because they're prepared for all of that stuff and you've taken that person who doesn't have the intention to engage in spiritual practice and they've got to sit there in silence. I guarantee that person would be tortured and they would be going through hell, especially inside here. And that's going to be essentially what a lot of people are going through uh, at the moment through the lockdown. To me, one of the most useful things to understand in uh, meditative training in the East is that your sense functions, your uh, I, always get the, I always get the list wrong. You're seeing, you're hearing, you're touch, you're taste, you're feeling. That's it, the five key ones, right? Your five sense faculties. They are seen as having um, a kind of sense of intelligence of their own, you know? Now, that doesn't mean that we've got five brains attached to one in each one of these senses, but what it means is that the sense faculties essentially are responsible uh, for creating a kind of cognitive response according to what you're interacting with. Um, and this is the basis uh, for much of the generation of thought um, and generation of emotional experience while we're interacting with the world. It's a very simple model. So basically they say that uh, within Eastern thoughts that when you're interacting with the world, that which you see, that which you taste, you smell, you hear, you touch, definitely missed one out there, but whatever, you know what I mean? With that which I'm interacting with via my five here, that which you hear, there we go, that which I'm interacting with through my five senses will generate a movement of mind on the inside. So that essentially what's happening is my mind is having a movement, we call that a thought, a movement in relationship to something that is coming in and being received from my senses. I mean, that's, that's the general model, right? This is one of the main reasons in meditation, the first thing they try to do is, um, well, in Taoism, they talk about sealing the five senses or closing the windows. Sometimes you're seeing classics and they say, without leaving your door or without looking out of your window, you can know the world. This is a line. Dada Jing talks about this. And uh, people have mistranslated and say, well, don't ever travel, don't leave your house, isn't it? Well, actually, like, that's a bit like lockdown, isn't it? You know what I mean? They say that if you don't leave your house, you can still know everything because it's, that's nothing to do with that. The doors and the windows that you're supposed to seal up are your sense faculties, your windows and your doors. Windows, that which you look out of, and doors, that's which you receive information from. They're saying, close your sense faculties. And then without doing that, you can know the world, even without the doors and windows. Well, the world is a metaphor for your body, for your self, for your being, for your mind. So the same happens in meditation as this. I shut down my sense faculties and I uh, can't interact with the world in any way whatsoever. And then what happens is the sixth sense faculty kicks in. And that's always what comes next. And the sixth sense faculty is your thinking. Yeah, basically the thoughts. So in the West, we talk about the sixth sense as being kind of like intuition or something like that, the magical knowing or blah, blah, blah. But actually, in the East, that's not true. That would, that would be a, difference, a different thing, actually. Your sixth sense is your thought, and it's considered equal to your hearing, your touching, your tasting, and so on and so on. Sometimes that confuses people when they first encounter it, because how is your vision the same as your thought? Well, it's because what they're doing within Eastern thought, meditative thought, is they are saying that the sense faculties are those things that generate reactions within you. That's it, right? So, if I see something, it generates an action. I see something nice, I see something hideous, I see something weird, I see something kind of 
weird but also interesting, whatever it is, I see those things and it generates a movement in the mind. Here's some music I like, here's some music I don't like, experimental jazz, something like that. It generates something inside the mind or something, and so on and so on with things I touch. I like the feel of this, I don't like the feel of this, you know, whatever. But if those things are shut off, all that's left is the sixth sense, which is your thought. And of course, in meditation, boom, there it goes. Up comes the thoughts, because as soon as I shut the, shut the senses off, here come the thoughts. Now, the idea is, is that generally the untrained person, the untrained mind, will always receive the same level of information. But it doesn't matter where that information comes from. So if I look around the room really fast, I can, I can pick up all sorts of information from my eyes. If I touch everything I can, I can pick up information from my hands, my, or my sense faculty of feeling, and so on and so on and so on. But if I shut all of those things off, my mind still wants to receive the same level of stimulation, so then comes the thoughts. And the more I shut the senses down, the more the thoughts are produced. Now, did you have thoughts before? Well, of course you did, you know, but they were there, they were in your mind. But a lot of those thoughts are in relationship to the interactions that you're having you know, through, through your sense faculties. If you want an easy example of that, I mean, if, you know, if you're sat there doing nothing and you're thinking about something and horrible thoughts come into your head or depressing or miserable or, or for me, boring, like I must be a very boring person without realizing it because these boring thoughts sort of come in the center of my head. The easiest way to not deal with those, and I'm not saying this is the answer, this is running away from, the easiest way to not deal with these is distract myself. And what do you distract yourself with? Well, you distract yourself with doing something. I go in, I do something. I go over there and I juggle. I don't juggle, but you know what I mean? I do something because now my sense faculties are doing something because my brain is receiving information from the outside. Then the inner sense, the sixth sense, isn't needed quite so much anymore, so it goes a little bit more quiet. If, you, if people are constantly distracted all the time through those sense faculties, then of course that sixth sense faculty is not quite so prominent anymore, is it? You know, And there's, there's lots of examples where we hide from our thoughts by distracting ourselves, by doing things. One example being movies or media or blah, blah, blah. Now, during the COVID lockdown, this is what people have started to encounter because when they could go out and about and lead their life and do their job and see their friends and go shopping or whatever it is people do, then of course, the sense faculties are receiving all those simulation, yeah? but as soon as they're in lockdown, and like I say, they've exhausted Netflix and they've exhausted social media, and so many fucking cats playing the piano you can look at or whatever, and you've gone through all of that process, all that's left is now, bonk, there it is, your mind. I've been sat in this room for two weeks. I've seen every wall so many times. It's not stimulating anymore. Sense faculty is not really generating anything interesting, so here comes the thoughts. Now, the result of this is that in many people's cases, the thoughts are difficult for them to deal with. And the reason the thoughts are difficult for them to deal with is because they're very emotionally laden. Yeah, that's, that's the main issue. And as soon as they are emotionally laden, emotionally biased, then of course what happens is you have to experience the emotion. So maybe the first emotion might be boredom, which ultimately means that if you're going to get, if boredom is going to arise in your mind, that's normally the first thing, unless you're already very, very emotionally traumatized or heightened, in which case you'll kind of skip that stage. But generally, if you're left to your own devices, here comes boredom. Boredom, to me, in many cases, when people are starting to engage with their mind, is a warning sign. Because what happens is boredom will come, and boredom is a sign that your mind is not receiving the stimulation that it requires. That's why you're bored, right? It's to cause you to do something. So if I have a job in a factory and I'm pulling that, which I've done, and what did I have to do? I had to pull levers until that awful green stuff made of avocados. I don't know. Well, that's good. You dip chips in it and I've forgotten and everyone else likes it apart from me. I've forgotten the word, but you know what I mean? My mind keeps thinking gazpacho, but it's definitely not that. But anyway, I'm pumping the avocado sauce <laughs> into the plastic thing like this for the lever. Teenage jobs, right? And of course, after a while, what happens is I start to get very, very bored. And the reason I'm starting to get bored is because my mind at first is happy, the feeling of the lever, the pulling of the lever, the happiness. Okay, it's got stimulation, the smell of the green stuff or whatever. And I'm doing this and, I, and, it's, you know, and it's satisfying my brain for what, five minutes? Then what happens is boredom starts to arise. That's the next feeling. Oh my God, is this what my life is leading to? You know, boom. Then after that, what starts to come after boredom is the brain will seek some form of stimulation. So in many people, what will happen is the brain will then start to produce thoughts that are more interesting. So people then start fantasizing, dreaming about 
whatever it is they'd rather be doing than pumping the green stuff. Then after this, if that's not enough stimulation, you run out of things you want to think about, then up start, starts coming emotions. And I remember looking at the long-term people in the, the factory, and a lot of them were very, very angry, very, very depressed, or a little bit um, maniacally insane, actually. I remember working with a lady who had a very unhealthy um, fascination with breeds of gerbil. That was, that was her thing. I thought it was a little bit crazy, a little bit mad. I think she liked them too much, sometimes bordered on slightly sexual interest in them. But she had clearly been someone who'd just been in the factory too much long, too long doing this, this job, you know. And all this kind of weirdness starts coming up in people. Now, for me, what it always used to start me doing was um, essentially to become emotionally unhappy. I become very, very frustrated, very, very angry. I wasn't supposed to be. That wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, or I started to become mischievous. So my mind wanted to cause trouble because ultimately if I cause trouble, I would create drama. And if I create drama, then I'm receiving stimulation from somewhere else because drama is... Look how popular Jeremy Kyle is in the UK. If you don't know what Jeremy Kyle is, um, it's uh, kind of like Jerry Springer, if you're American, but in the UK and more depressing because uh, England's more depressing than America. So what happens is, is that drama that is received by people when they watch these kind of programs is very, very stimulating for the mind because partially because it's very emotionally laden, partially it makes you feel better about yourself when you watch other people's drama. But I would start to create trauma, trouble for myself in order to create that drama. And a lot of people will do this all the time in their lives anyway. They will create drama after drama after drama because they're trying to receive some kind of stimulation. Ultimately, it comes down to an inability to deal with the boredom. And if you can't deal with the boredom, up comes the, the next thing, the emotion-laden problems or whatever. Now, in the lockdown, I would say that many people have been through the exhausting, the sense faculty stimulation. They're starting to go through the boredom, or maybe they've been through the boredom, and now out's coming the crazy, and for some people out's coming the emotionally difficult. Um, and all of the advice in the world to step away from that is not going to be as helpful as actually people just starting to understand what's taking place inside their mind. When in your mind, excuse me, drinking. Mm. It's not white wine. It looks a bit like it. It's actually apple tizer. Oh. I am that exciting. Within, your, uh, within your, your sort of makeup, your personal makeup, there's an interesting process that goes on. And that basically you're born without a personality. Now, I'm sure doting mothers and fathers everywhere will disagree with that. But of course, because of course their baby that has been born 10 minutes earlier has an amazing personality and the way it looked at you and the way it vomited down its own front and waved its arms around was full of personality because that's your child. But actually, if you look objectively at everyone else's child, they're really dull. And, and actually, babies just don't have a personality. When you've got a friend who's got a new child and they hand it to you, you're like, give it back to me in a few years' time when it's got a personality or something. Because there is nothing there yet, right? There's not been much interaction with the outside world. There's the potential for a personality, sure, because maybe it's born with genetically inherited fuck-ups or whatever, but it doesn't yet have one. But what starts to happen is as it interacts with the outside world, it learns its behavior from its parents and maybe its siblings or something like that, and it learns what it likes. It's like, touch that, that feels nice. Touch that, that's hot, don't like that. And so on and so on. The child will learn as it grows to develop uh, essentially preferences, you know, and after this a personality. Now at first it's very, very basic, because again, kids have all right personalities, but as you get older, your, your personality gets more and more complex and more and more intricate as time goes on, right? And, and generally the more experiences people have had, the more complex their makeup and the more complex their personality. Uh, because your brain is constantly building these layer after layer after layer after layer upon your mind to give you this it's not even a sense of individuality. I mean, we talk about that in meditation, like, you know, the, the step away from your sense of self-identification or something. But I mean, you can't deny that we do have an individuated self. It might be fake because it's transitory, of course, but meditation is using linguistics to say that we don't have a self. But in the world of experience and interacting with others, of course we do. That self is our personality. It might not be the true root of who we are, but it's still there. You know, I mean, it's still what I'm using right now to interact with the world and, and talk to a camera and things like this. And th that's my part. That's the part of my being that's doing this. Now, 
in order to move through life and, and for that personality to build, there has to be preference, or sometimes called attachments and, and so on and so on, um, attachments or repulsions, I suppose, or whatever. But what happens is, as you have these preferences to experiences, um, and on top of that, emotional flavoring of experiences, then more and more layers and nuances are built upon who you are. And that's generally what happens as we go through our life. And that is the function of the sense faculties and the function of our mind, the function of our thought, the sixth sense faculty. So, okay, the, the thought is there to help us learn, of course, so we can learn things, times tables, through to something interesting or whatever. Uh, and skills we need for life and living and how to cook this and how to drive that and how to pull that lever to get the green stuff that's not gazpacho out. Gazpacho is cold tomato soup, isn't it? I got no idea. Doesn't matter. Uh, but we are uh, building all of those skills, whatever we need for life. But then on top of that, there are all the emotional makeups and preferences and biases and blah, blah, blah that you, you have as well, right? Now, what will happen is your mind will always tend to develop a stronger reaction to something that is a stronger form of stimulation. Now, if you look at many people, obviously this becomes an issue, so they need stronger and stronger stimulations all the time, and there's, there's a route to many problems here. People that are very extreme in their behaviors or their preferences or the things they eat or the things they drink or whatever, whatever because that stimulation is desired, it's needed. But for all of us, there will also be things that resonate more with the mind. And this is where the basis of our emotional makeup and our personality comes from. So we, maybe we might say that it's astrologically based, if we're a Chinese medicine practitioner, or because of the fucking planetary alignments of the stars, if you're into Russell Grant type fucking cosmology, I don't know, whatever, you might have that belief. Or maybe you come from a psychological belief that it's all to do with early experiences that you had. So because you were slapped when you were five and that generated a very strong emotional reaction, you learned about anger or hate, maybe that developed a very, very strong bias or preference. Whatever it is, nature versus nurture, you will have leanings towards certain emotional experiences that are better for you or, or more strongly stimulating for you. So things, some people will be very, very angry and, and conflict-based, so those things will be very strong for them. Some people are very sad, and maybe they've had loss, maybe their parents fucked off when they were young and left them on their own or something like that, or maybe they're abandoned by a partner or the dog left, I don't know, whatever. Whatever it is, those abandonment issues are very, very strong in them, and, and so on and so on. And, and what will happen is, as you develop these experiences and you, your mind starts to understand which ones are the strongest, those are going to be your go-to experiences. So if you take anger or annoyance as an example, if that is your sort of resonant emotion that is the most prominent or the most dominant one within your mind because of experiences you've had or because that planet was there instead of there at the point of birth or whatever, it doesn't matter, then what will happen is when you receive things through your sense faculties that are confirming the importance of that part of your emotional makeup, those things are going to be stronger for you. So in a, a, someone who experiences the emotion of anger very, very strongly, for example, will mean that when information comes in, it's going to immediately pass through that question of, is this a form of conflict? Is this something I should be angry at? Somebody who has abandonment issues is going to interact with others or life and think, oh, is this someone that's going to leave me? Is this is someone that's going to hurt my sense of self to make me feel smaller? Or so on and so on. And of course, there's so many layers of complexity in this but we will have biases and preferences towards various emotional states. And I think we can all think of examples, maybe with others or maybe with ourselves, where one or more of, because of course there can be several, but one or more of these emotional things is very, very important uh, or very, very prominent within our mind. For me, it's conflict. Uh, very much from when I was younger, I've always been around fighting and da, da, da. so conflict. So I have to train myself when I interact with something or something comes in to remind myself, this might not be a conflict. You know, not everything has to go through that filter. And, and if we have some self-awareness, um, then of course we can understand what these things are and change it. Now, when you receive something through the sense faculties from the outside world, there's, there's actually, in my opinion, it's only my opinion, there's actually a helpful little filter that takes place. And not everybody might, just, might agree with this, but if someone is mentally healthy or mentally balanced, then when I receive something from the outside, I have this wonderful thing called logic and I have this other thing called common sense. Now, of course, people will have these varying degrees and sometimes I even wonder if common sense exists at all. I'm thinking about the bulk buying toilet roll crowd. But if something comes in and I'm like, okay, I interact with this person and I interact with this thing and this event has happened, I've seen this on the news and my friend has said this and it's passed through the filter of 
is this something I need to fight against or that side of my nature is there? Luckily, I have common sense where I can consider it and go, no, actually, that's just my stupid mental preference and I can ignore it and I can have that experience in the right way, um, pure, without me applying the filter of rah, rage on top of it. And I think what happens is as people get older, what we have is people talk about emotional intelligence, meaning that when you look at yourself, you understand your emotional makeup, you're more emotionally intelligent, so those things are less of a factor, obviously. And some people are more emotionally intelligent than others, of course, um, but this develops. Now, unfortunately, that emotional intelligence is much, much more difficult to apply to something that comes from the sixth sense. This is a problem from thought. And this is something that is only my opinion, but I see going on. So what happens is somebody might watch something unpleasant, watch something confrontational based, maybe on TV, maybe in the news, maybe even a movie, horror movie, action movie, I don't know, whatever shit people entertain themselves with, or they hear something conflict based, and they can kind of, it's like the interaction with the outside world has a certain degree of common sense applied to it. And it's kind of, and okay, it might still generate an emotional reaction, but I can kind of filter it through and know what, how I should be dealing with that because of my emotional intelligence. But if that thing comes from the inside, often that filter doesn't seem to be there. So what will happen is um, people will have an interaction with someone and they're like, it's okay. But if they then go away and think about it, that thought will go round and around and around in their head and amplify and amplify and amplify. And of course, after a while, there's no realism to the thought. Because if I'm seeing something, there's always going to be some realism. If I look at this pillow, this pillow looks like a pillow. I think it's a cushion actually, isn't it? But you know what I mean? If I look at it, it looks like this. It's not going to change shape. It's not going to change color. It's not going to develop teeth and bite my face off or something like that because my vision and my brain know that this is real. If, however, I'm left to my own thoughts and I'm thinking of the pillow, it's not long within a short space of time when I don't have it there that the image of the pillow starts to change because your thoughts cannot be trusted. That's the basic root of it. So what I mean is like after a while the pillow looks like that and maybe if I think of that pillow in six weeks time I think it was green you know and then I think of the pillow a bit further down the line yeah I don't think it had patterns on it and whatever but obviously that image becomes less and less accurate and if you actually consider your memories many of them are very very inaccurate because our mind has distorted all of those things because we don't have any actual sensory data to base it on. Now this also happens with something very simple like the cushion that's not green um, but it also happens with regards to our emotional consideration of things, our thoughts about what other people have said and what they've done and da-da-da-da, until eventually that conversation you have with someone that was very, very innocent, if you're someone who sees things like myself through the lens of conflict, perhaps, a six weeks later, you're like, hang on a minute, that was quite rude, uh, that was quite confrontational, did that person think something bad about me? Were they having a go? Motherfucker. Like, that's what starts to go on inside the head, whereas someone who's very, very low self-esteem will after a while start to think actually that person really doesn't like me very much and somebody who's got abandonment issues think oh maybe that's a hint that that person is going to leave or someone who's very I don't know sad might be like it gets welled up and that memory is just really really difficult after a while because there's no realism filters applied through the sense faculties which is why the hardest sense to deal with is also always going to be your thought yeah now the sense faculties largely will interact with the outside world so some people will learn to deal with others, okay, through the sense faculties, but how many people learn to deal with themselves? Now, for most people, actually, luckily, when we interact with the outside world, what we start to do is kind of ignore or escape that inside a little bit. We escape from that a tiny bit, you know, because we're distracted. The mind doesn't need stimulation because it's got all the other stimulation, the sense faculties, whatever. But... It doesn't need the sixth sense because there's enough stimulation there. But when we're left on our own and those sense faculties are gone, in comes the thoughts and the sixth sense faculty comes in because it tends to be full of delusion. Yeah, that's the nature of mind, sixth sense faculty. Then all of those experiences get blown out of all proportion until we're left with a massively distorted version of what was true. And this is what's going on when people think, right? Now, if we look at people that... Uh, are in isolation for some reason, you know, maybe in prison, something like that. What happens when they go into, uh, you know, when they've done something bad and they go off on their own? Uh, they, you know, they lock them in a cell on their own. They're not allowed to interact with the other inmates um, or anything like this. What happens during that stage is, of course, a lot of people start to go very, very crazy. The emotions get more and more and more. They get angrier and angrier. And there's all sorts of statistics you can find in psychology about um, how putting people in seclusion 
in places like that actually makes them worse. And then when they're put back into general population, there's all sorts of problems there. Because, of course, they are dealing with the sixth sense faculty all of the time and already in a situation where they're pretty angry, they're pretty unhappy. So those things are going to distort and they become massive. Now, on a lesser scale, there's everybody in lockdown. That's what's going on. Once the stimulation is not there, and okay, people are still looking around and stuff, but there's more time to be left with their own thoughts. So up they come, up they come. Your mind already knows what creates the most stimulation. So if my mind knows that conflict is very, very stimulating, my thoughts are always going to be leaning that way. I'm not going to produce happy thoughts. I'm not going to sit there and it's all the sound of music and sort of butterflies and fairy fairies. Why would I be thinking of fairies? Whatever, puppies. I don't know. Things like that are not going to fill my mind. What is going to fill my mind is all of those things that annoy me. All of those people that annoy me. All of the interactions I've had that annoy me. Because those thoughts are going to want to stimulate that bit of my personal makeup that my mind already knows is the most stimulating. Someone who is very... So what happened, essentially, if I don't have any emotional intelligence or ability to deal with mind, I'm going to sit in that space. I'm on lockdown. got all the toilet roll I need. I'm in America. I've got 15 machine guns. I'm sorted. I'm just left to my own devices. I'm just going to get angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier until something snaps because eventually the generation of their thoughts are going to lead to the generation of action because that's what thoughts do. They generate action and then you get problems. Somebody who is very um, low self-esteem or with abandonment issues, that other person we're talking about, that kind of quality, is going to get lonelier and lonelier and lonelier and sadder and sadder because all of those thoughts that generate... You know, all those thoughts are like, oh, I am worthless. No, nobody does like me. Oh, everyone's going to come, 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 come. Because your mind knows that's the most stimulating. So actually, those people are going to suffer a great deal because the time in lockdown is going to confirm to them that actually, yes, it is very sad. They are going to spend their life on their own. And that's going to become very, very problematic. Now, if we extend that out over some time, this amplification of that mental imbalance is going to get worse and worse. And this is the root of why a lot of people are struggling big time. Now, because the mind will always attract uh, thoughts, like generate thoughts that it knows generate the strongest emotional reactions, it means that your mind is always going to feed, your, feed you with that which is the most stimulating. So we can already kind of know, for many people as a meditation teacher, when they come and you have a conversation, you kind of know what kind of thoughts people are going to get. You know where their brain is going to lead them because you know what their tendency is, what kind of self-fulfilling drama is going to arise within their mind. And of course, what has happened is that mental thing after a while will actually change the nature of their personality and it does become self-fulfilling because say for example, say for example that, um, okay, go back to anger. Maybe I learned at a very young age that anger, bang, slap, anger was a, a very important part of my makeup. And then I'm left to my own devices and then I have angry thoughts. And then those angry thoughts make me more angry, of course, because that's what happens. So then what happens is I put out the message of being angry, ta-da, out to everybody because my body language will change, my uh, language will change, all sorts of subtle energetic signaling that people aren't even aware of will put out. So then what happens is that starts to be what I project. And then what happens is I interact with someone else and they see that and they will interact with me from that place because I'm now a confrontational person. So then what happens is I start to, well, that person's being confrontational. So now I have fulfilled that prophecy because now when I interact with people, they are angry towards me. And if they're angry towards me, then there goes those thoughts against. Confrontation is there and I've created my own drama and on and on and on it goes like so. Same with lonely people. Lonely people will put that out, low self-esteem. One of two things will happen. Well, actually, uh, low self-esteem and sort of sorry for themselves can actually be a bit of an off-put for some people. So gradually what happens is people stay away from them. So then they get lonelier because there's less interaction with others. Or they attract people that are a bit predatory who like those people that are a little bit weak because it's like the wounded animal attracts the predator. And then they have bad experiences with people which actually makes them feel worse about themselves and, and so on and so on. And these patterns repeat all the time. This is a self-fulfilling prophecy of who we are based on our own preference for mental drama on the inside. These kind of things are going to get exacerbated the more and more we're left with our own thoughts because we'll always, the mind will always try to lead us down the path of distortion that we're already going through. Now for many people, one of the most stimulating sides of their mind is fear. Yeah, that is huge. And of course, those people right now are getting stimulated by media all the time because they could die of COVID at any moment. And if they don't die of COVID, then the economy is going to collapse. And if the economy doesn't collapse, 
then they're going to run out of toilet roll. And if they don't run out of toilet roll, then the looter's going to come and shoot them or whatever it is. And gradually what you'll see is the media will get more and more extreme as the weeks go on until I'm sure, I mean, I remember watching during, um, what was that? I can't remember. Something bad happened, I'm not sure. Some kind of disaster. Whatever the last one was, there's always some kind of disaster going on. At the moment it's COVID. Before that it was something else. Before that it was something else. There's always something. I'm sure I've lived through the end of the world like four times now in my lifetime and still seems to be chugging along and whatever. And people talking about COVID like it's the next end of the world, but I'm not so sure. But whatever it was, that drama was unfolding. And initially the media was very sensible and said, look, this is what's going on. And then after that, people were bored of that. So then the fear started coming in and this is what's going on. And you might die. And then after that, that didn't work anymore. So you're definitely going to die. And then after that, it got kind of ridiculous. And I remember like the kind of stories you'd see that you would just think were fantastical would start coming in. And it just got crazier and crazier because there had to be more for fear-based stimulation all the time. So people that are coming from that position of fear, man, they're going crazy right now because all of that stimulation is there all of the time. Now, all of this, all of this part of your mind is the transitory part that in meditation people are trying to step away from. Because before you step back to the absolute, before you step back to the spirit, before you step back to the Godhead or whatever it is within your tradition towards Tao or Buddha nature, of course, that which is transitory must ultimately be starved of stimulation, right? And in Taoism, they call this heart mind, or uh, mind, you could call it, they say heart mind, but if you're not familiar with that kind of terminology, essentially you think of it as mind, right? Mind fasting, that's the first thing, mind fasting. Fasting as in, you know, starving yourself of something, not speeding up. So what they do in mind fasting is, first of all, they become aware of the nature of mind. Right? So you, you see this process unfolding in you. Okay, there it is. Oh, fuck, yeah, I'm crazy. I knew it. Definitely confirmed. Then the next stage is to fast or starve the mind of that stimulation. So what they do within mind fasting to stop that process is, first of all, they distract you. Yeah? Like I said, to get away from the thoughts, you distract yourself from the outside world. And that's why people are addicted to stimulation, whether it's through the TV or the telephone or sex or drugs or whatever, to get them out of their mind, to get them out of their thoughts, you know. But we also use stimulation and meditation for mind fasting. But what we do is we use something very, very simple. And generally, that's the breath. That's the first thing. So sometimes people come up with all sorts of reasons why we use a breath. Breath is mind, breath is transitory, stuff like that. Okay, all of those things are true and, and there's reasons why we could argue that that, that kind of work with an Anapanasati meditation is valid. But one of the first things it does, even more basic than that, is the breath just distracts you. Now I have something that is moving, something I can kind of feel. I might not feel it as much as, you know, physical contact or something, but I can feel the breath moving. Sometimes you can almost hear it a little bit, very lightly or something, but the senses are receiving something. But they're receiving something that's not too stimulating. But it's enough to be distracted by. So what happens is my awareness must stabilize onto that thing, stabilize onto that transitory moving of the breath or whatever the object of meditation is. Now I forget absorption into that object. I forget uni, I forget jhanic states. I forget all that. The first thing is to stabilize the mind onto something which is not too stimulating. You know, let's be honest, the breathing. For long enough periods that my sense faculties are involved in that. So the sixth sense faculty doesn't kick in too much because the sixth sense faculty kicks in most when your mind receives no stimulation through the other five sense faculties. So at first when you stabilize on the breath, the mind goes crazy, of course, because it's like, hey, look at me, I've got something way more exciting. Look at your breath. See how boring that is? I've got traumas. That'll be way more stimulating. So that's what starts to kick in. It's like the brain going, look at me, I'm fucked up but you ignore it, you stay with the breath for long enough and you stabilize the mind on it. The stimulation of the breath is enough or whatever the object of meditation is and gradually the thoughts start to, they don't go. Like sometimes people, the thoughts will go, like the emptiness of thoughts will arise from just that. That's very unlikely. There are various other processes involved. You have to absorb into it for the mind to disappear. But, but what will happen is gradually the mind, it's like a small child tugging at your sleeve Tell them not a parent, right, with all these analogies. Tearing at your, tugging at your sleeve because it wants sweets and you ignore it and eventually it learns it doesn't get sweets. If it tugs on your sleeve and you give it sweets and then tugs on your sleeve and you give it sweets, it's going to turn into a little fat, sugar-addicted kid because it knows it gets whatever it wants whenever it's a spoiled little shit bag. So in that way, when you're learning not to give the child what it wants, 
then actually it grows either traumatized through starvation or into something a lot more balanced and harmonious as an adult. It's the same with your mind. When the mind starts kicking in with those thoughts, but that's okay, I'm absorbed into my breath and I'm stabilized like a meditation pro into that process of breathing, which is highly stimulating instead of my mind, the thoughts actually start subsiding with regards that are emotional strength. It's like, I'll give you some anger. Oh, he's not paying attention. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. No need to produce any anger because he's ignore me anyway. So gradually the root of your mind, the sixth sense faculty, starts to slow down and subside. And as it starts to subside and pull away from that extreme emotional state, the thoughts are still there but it's learning that it can't stimulate that preference that you have based on your distortion. So gradually, emotionally, you start to center. When that starts to happen, I call this becoming comfortable with mind. Okay, you won't rise above it. You won't destroy it. You won't demolish it. You won't evolve past that state, but you're becoming comfortable with your mind. You, know? you are residing in that which is transitory, the breathing in this case, not mind. I mean, just enough that there's enough sense stimulation that the sixth sense faculty switches off. And then gradually, the stages after that, based upon absorption or stepping into um, less, less prominent, less dominant objects of meditation, I suppose you could say, so that actually you require less distraction, less distraction, less distraction, then what you have is directly looking at the root of mind. And this is kind of uh, a lot of what the next step in many meditation systems, especially the ones I study, are, is like turn the light around, turn the awareness around and stare directly at the root of that thing. But I can't stare directly at the root of that thing or rise above the root of that thing unless the root is fairly quiet. I don't want to be going through rage. I've been locked in solitary confinement. That's what I was thinking of. That's what happens in prison. Still no idea what the green stuff is called that you have in Mexican food, but it will come to me later. I'm sure you know what it is. Um, what's going on? Lost. Yes, but that's what's happening in uh, isolation. You know, what, what's going on is those things are coming up. There's the rage, there's the rage, there's the rage, because it's creating that kind of stimulation. And in order to deal with that, what happens is the mind has to then stabilize on this under distracted. But I don't want to, at that time, stare straight at that rage. Turn the light around while you're raged. Because all that happens is you're just looking straight at the nature of your raging amplified mind. And all that does is feed it so it gets worse and worse and worse. So there has to be a stage of getting to know your own mind and then gradually quieting the mind before we try to step, look at it at the root of it and then step beyond that stage. And sometimes that's missed a little bit. And sometimes when people do that, sit there in a rage and then turn the awareness around and look inside. It gets worse to the point that it can actually be traumatic. And a lot of um, problems that arise in meditation, mindfulness and things like that, are from uh, this kind of unskilled looking at the nature of emotions arising strongly in the center of your mind. You know, in many cases, you'd be better off learning to use the sense faculties more sensibly for a while before you do that. Yeah. So... Hopefully that's easy enough. Now, this process that's going on also then, for many people, reaches a state of extreme. And what will happen is the mind will actually protect itself by severing a part of your mind. That sounds peculiar, doesn't it? So in, in Chinese medicine, we call this possession, right? So you do have possession in Chinese medicine in the most literal sense. Here's a ghost. Slimer from the ghost bunk busters climbs up your nostril. You're fucked. You've got a ghost or something like that. But that's incredibly rare, and a lot of people wouldn't believe in it anyway but there are forms of Chinese medicine that do talk about literal possession. But more important is possession by your own mind. And this is talked about a lot within um, certainly some forms of Chinese medical thought to do with psychology. Now, essentially how this works is, <laughs> is quite interesting. Is maybe you have such a really strong emotion based on a trauma or something. Let's go back to anger because it's nice and easy. And you've got this angry part of your mind that gets stimulated. And maybe it's got so strong that it starts to actually consume your nature. It's like so, that you can't see anything without rage. The neighbor makes you angry, the postman makes you angry, the dog next door, see the, see the um, subliminal gun shape with my hand, you can tell the neighbor's dog barks too much, but you know what I mean, like whatever it is, it just annoys you, the guy cutting the lawn, that's really annoying, but it, that rage goes and grows and grows until everything annoys you, until even accidentally brushing your hand on something annoys you, because that is the only filter you have because it's so strong. Now what happens at that stage is often your mind to protect you will cut that emotion off, boom, it goes. And then two things happen. First, numbness. And in Chinese medicine, this is through the po, one out of the po, as it's often pronounced. This is a part of your spirit related to the element of metal that protects your consciousness from those traumatic experiences. So when the emotion is too strong, numbness arises. That's the first thing. It's almost like a state of numb shock, PTSD type thing, that sort of numb part of that that kicks in to protect you from that experiences. So people will switch off. 
And then what happens is gradually that part of your consciousness becomes a separate entity. So the anger was cut off, now it becomes separate. When it becomes separate, because you don't have an identification with it, actually some of your common sense and emotional intelligence and all that is kind of gone now because it's not something your mind identifies with. It's like, here's my emotional spectrum, here's my numb region. And then what happens is after a while is that anger comes back and it consumes you. And when it consumes you, we say you are possessed by something. Now this is why in Chinese medicine they talk about five types of ghosts. Black ghosts, white ghosts, green ghosts, yellow ghosts, red ghosts. Blue, black, black. Yeah, that's right. Those, and they're the five colors of the five elements and they're the five elemental colors that they use as a broad categorization of the emotions. So in the case of an angry ghost, I would say I have a green ghost. That's what that person has, a green ghost. So basically what happens is at certain times when I am triggered, to use a, <laughs> a loaded uh, word from common terminology, I suppose, but when someone is triggered by an event that would normally stimulate anger, okay, what happens is they don't register the anger. So something's happened, because I've gone through the numb stage, something annoys me, I don't register it because I'm a bit numb, but it still touches that part of my being. It feeds the green ghost, if you like, that which we're possessed by, and it comes like a cloud through your whole, whole being until you are enraged. And you'll see this as people will go from naught to 60 in half a second, where the rage is just all-consuming. And when they have that rage all the way through them, because it is consuming, they're possessed by it, there's no defences against it. And then what happens is people start to develop irrationally. So then they lash out and they smash something up or they punch their wife or whatever they do. I don't know. That rage has overtaken them. And this can happen with any of the emotions. And at this stage, in the West, I'd say we someone has snapped. In Eastern thought, in Chinese medicine thought, we say that the possession has overtaken. They've been possessed by their own trauma because it was amplified to the point of becoming a ghost. And this is what is starting to happen in the case of uh, people who are going a little bit crazy in the lockdown. Once they get past the pendulum trick stage, if you know, I don't know what it is, look it up on YouTube. It's kind of cool, actually. But, you know, they're past that to the crazy stuff. People that become suicidal or people that, um, you know, want to hurt others or whatever it is, I don't know, there's really extreme cases of what we would call mental illness where people are at risk to themselves and risk to others. Um, within Chinese thought, essentially, that's what would come under this extreme uh, possession that arises uh, from the awareness overtaking its own mind, essentially, the sixth sense faculty becoming distorted. Within uh, Chinese medical thought, there's actually ways we would do to treat that, to, to sort of refuse the mind and deal with it. You know, it's a little bit complex, but it's kind of higher level of Chinese medicine psychological treatments. Um, a very interesting part of it as well to, to do this with somebody, but very complex. But of course, it can be dealt with uh, through meditation and things like that. And my advice always to people at first is that if you want to get through that stage, right? So let forget absorbing into true awareness, forget absorbing into true spirit, sit in there absorbing into the light, because if I absorb into the light, I won't have to do it. Well, sure, fine, if you can do that, brilliant. For regular people <laughs> before that who are living an ordinary life and, and wouldn't consider themselves to be at that level, there's two stages. The first is become aware of that process. That's it. If you're not aware of it, then it's just going to unfold and unfold and unfold. It's like anything. If something's going on, you don't know it's going on. It's just going to carry on going on in the background and, and you're not going to have any say in it. So you must become aware of it. So one of the first things is um, you know, identification of this process. This can be theoretical, of course. I need to understand it. Maybe I can write it down. I can do a little flow chart or a, what you call those, one of those diagrams, action plan or mind map. That's what I'm thinking of, of the way I think and the way I feel. Most people into meditation would say, well, that's an external method. I'm against it. Just look inside. I don't agree. I think if that's a tool that works for you, that self-analysis, go for it. Like analyze those things. Do it in a completely non-personal way, you know, as if you're kind of analyzing somebody that's not you. Don't get emotionally involved. I am angry. Oh, what a fucking asshole I am for being angry. You've already lost because as soon as you identify um, emotionally with the error you have of that mindset, then of course you're creating more stimulation, the layer gets stronger. So it must be done in a very emotionally depersonalized way. Okay, yeah, I suffer anger because of that, and that's because that happened, and all right, yeah, I can see that. And yeah, maybe that experience I had actually maybe wasn't being rude. You know, that kind of analysis is what you want. Then the next stage after that is once you're aware of it and you can see when those triggers arise in you, is to simply sit and engage with a very simple uh, object of practice, I wouldn't even call it meditation, just an ob object of awareness for the sense faculties, like the breathing, 
uh, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. I don't advise music for meditation ever, of course not. But this isn't meditation, this is mental training. So if you wanted a very simple, repetitive, don't have fucking hip-hop or something like that, that's ridiculous, it's overly mental stimulating. If you want a very simple, I'm not going to say whale song, because who the fuck listens to whale song unless you're in a spa, but something along those lines, you know, there's just a little tinkling. If that's your object of observation, it's not as good as the breath, but if that's what you can do, use that, and sit there for periods of time just absorbing into that, letting your mind just become quieter and quieter, yeah, quieter and quieter upon this object, whatever it is, until that part of your emotional makeup starts to learn, ah, Damo's not listening, all right, I'll just chill out and do something else instead. And then gradually what happens is that part of your emotional makeup you identify with will start to mellow out. And as it starts to mellow out, this is where in meditation we would bridge across into mind fasting or something like this, but more importantly, for maybe trying to survive in lockdown, is where you might be able to not move into these really, really strong emotional patterns that are kicking off all of the time. Once the mind starts to ease off and stops creating that imbalance, then it's safe to step away and enter into like completely trying to still the mind, you know? I'm aware that most meditation teachers, many meditation teachers wouldn't agree with me on this, especially they would say, I'm not doing it in a traditional way, or this isn't classical, or it's not hardcore enough, or, I agree, it's none of those things. It's not traditional, it's not classical, it's not hardcore. It's certainly not, it's not what I call meditation. Meditation starts at the jhanic states, really, or samadhi, you could argue. But it's not meditation for me, it's mental training. And that's what needs to come first. If somebody is already pretty mentally centered and they've made the decision, I'm going to study meditation, fair enough. But for people who haven't made that decision, who are struggling with their own minds, this kind of mental inquiry and mental training, um, I would say, is more important, more useful at this time uh, to enable them to become comfortable uh, with the experience that they're having. And then, who knows, maybe Netflix will put something more interesting on that will keep you distracted anyway, then you won't need it.